0: The fastest way to get from point A to point B is not to ride hard and then blow up. The fastest way from point A to point B is to either do even splits or even do negative splits if that's possible.
1: Everyone, welcome to the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast powered by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host Adam Saban, and we've got a lot to get through this week, so I'll keep this intro short and snappy. We're talking in-season strength training, how to pace the start of a marathon mountain bike race, and rapid-fire questions including block periodization, compression wear, and more. Today's show is also brought to you by Flow Formulas. I'm fresh off a new PR at Leadville last weekend, and though I still fell short of my stretch goal, I can rest assured that it wasn't from my nutrition. I packed in over 100 grams of carbs an hour throughout the seven and a half hours on course and never had any gut issues, palate fatigue, bonking, or anything else you typically experience with improper nutrition. So if you're interested in leveling up your race day fueling, head over to flowformulas.com today to check it out and use the discount code IGNITIONPODCAST10 for 10% off your first order. And as always, if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends and leave us a 5 star review. And if you have any questions for the show, drop us an email at matchboxpod at gmail.com with email title the Matchbox podcast. Or you can head over to Ignition Coachco and fill out the Matchbox podcast listener question form. All right, let's get into it. Okay, so this first question we got here is coming from Michael. It has to do with in-season weightlifting. Mm-hmm. So Michael says, It appears that preseason weightlifting and strength training is widely accepted by you guys personally and for your clients. DJ's YouTube video on, on lifting stresses the importance, but I couldn't discern whether he continues it into the race season. I would guess not with how full his race schedule is and how much travel is required, but what are each of your thoughts on in-season weight training? For me specifically, if I lift one time per week, I get DOMS, or delayed onset muscle soreness, so I'd probably have to lift two times per week. I ride Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday uh, for an average 150 TSS, I think. It says 150th slash AM. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, but anyways, uh, where would you incorporate lifting sessions and would you refrain before any priority races? I have a feeling the answer may be don't lift during the race season. If that's the case, that's fine with me. But I'm curious on your thoughts, Michael. Okay, Michael, I think you're you're kind of thinking in the right, the
0: right realm here because uh, you mentioned how busy my race schedule is. And the answer is I, I don't lift during the race season, uh, which may shock some people because I'm such a huge proponent of lifting, uh, for improving cycling performance in general. And whether or not you lift in the race season, depends on a couple of factors. I think the biggest one is how busy your race schedule is. If you have too many races on the calendar, uh, there's a point at which it, it, you have to cut out lifting because the the stress of racing so much is pretty high and you're already struggling to recover from races in time for the next race and get in all your high intensity workouts and race specific intervals something's got to go and and usually the first thing to go is lifting um and so somebody who's got a really busy race schedule i usually take out lifting for them um that being said that doesn't mean you necessarily need to take out lifting during the race season. If you have a much more sparse calendar, or maybe you're just training for one event, just training for unbound, or you're just training for Leadville or something like that, or you you got one event on your calendar, or maybe you got two or three. uh, I don't really see a need to take out weightlifting, especially for masters athletes where masters athletes, you know, the older you get, you're dealing with muscle loss with age. And I think it actually becomes more important to keep lifting in your schedule year round.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, I mean, my approach really isn't much different. It, it depends. Mm-hmm. Like if, if an athlete has a lull in the race season, like maybe they do some spring racing and then have a month or two with, with a you know, only a little bit of, of racing going on. And then maybe they hit cyclocross in the fall or something like I'll usually try and take advantage of, of that two or three month period where we can get back into some lifting. If you only got a month between races and you already have stopped lifting, it's probably not going to be the best to just pick it up for a couple weeks. Like you, you might get a little bit of improvement there, but you're going to sacrifice some, like, like he mentioned here, you know, you get some doms from some of those weightlifting sessions and you're going to, you're going to experience that whenever you get back into weightlifting after you've taken some time off. So unless your break between, big races is, you know, probably two months or more, then it's probably not worth it to, to go back into strength training, you know, unless you've only taken a week or two off. Um, but what I would say is, you know, he he mentions that if he only lifts one time per week, he gets doms. And what I would say is maybe you're trying to do too much on that one day, you know, Mm -hmm. you might want to try and get a little more focused, uh, and and also treat it more as maintenance mode versus trying to continue to make improvements. So, and that's kind of the the best case scenario is throughout the season. If you're, if you're trying to strength train while also racing, it's like, you're just trying to maintain whatever strength you've built in the off season at best, you know, maybe drop a handful of percent. So don't try to, you know, increase your weights week after week or increase your reps week after week, like find a routine that kind of hits all the muscle groups that you're looking for. Um, Particularly like posterior chain is really good. So looking at like deadlifts or squats, like keeping those in the routine is good because it helps to maintain like back and core strength during, during the season. Um, but don't, don't worry about trying to make improvements. Like you're just trying to maintain that. So if you're, you know, mm-hmm. if you come out of the base season and you're doing, you know, reps of eight at two twenty five for squats, like just keep that don't, don't keep trying to improve, improve on that, you know, or maybe even drop it down a little bit. Um, It's okay to lose a little bit of strength. What we're trying to do there is just keep those muscle groups activated and do as much maintenance as we can. So that's what I would say is, you know, if, even if you can only fit lifting in once a week, I think you can, you can definitely still maintain that strength that you've built in the off season, but you shouldn't really get doms if you're doing it appropriately. And by doing them appropriately, I mean, not trying to make improvements because lifting once a week is going to be challenging in general to, to try and see big strength gains. Like you, you have to uh, expose yourself to those demands, you know, two or three times a week. And that's why in the off season, I think all of us would prescribe at least two days a week of, of strength training. Um, so yeah, if you're only lifting once a week, you're already in maintenance mode anyways. Yeah. And I I think that the other part to his
0: question was what, when, when should you schedule these maintenance lifting sessions in your training week? Um, I think that as far as, you know, should you ride before or should you ride after uh, lifting session. I think if it's an endurance ride, it doesn't really matter. And I know that there's some debate about this, but if it's an intensity day, I prefer to do the intervals before doing the strength session. I know there are some people that say, Oh, if they do a strength session and then they go do intervals, they, they feel like their legs are opened up or something. I don't know. I think there's a reason why you don't hit the squat rack before you do a race. Right is this should this should be obvious, but I, some some people argue the opposite. Personally, I, I i don't do I don't do strength training before I have an interval session, and I also try to, in order to avoid having DOMS while I'm doing an interval session, even if it's just a small amount of DOMS, I try to schedule a weight training session uh, either the same day after intervals or maybe the next day, so that means. Means I have the maximum amount of recovery time before my next interval session, so that I'm I have no DOMs going into that interval session. If that makes sense,
1: yeah, yeah. And and Michael says his schedule is riding Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then he takes Saturday or Friday off. Then he rides Saturday, Sunday, and then he takes Monday off. So I would say if you if you have the time, like it would probably make sense to put that strength training session maybe on Thursday after your ride or before your ride if it's an endurance ride, like Dylan said. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or if you, if you have more time on the weekends and, you know, hit the gym on Sunday, kind of end your week with that gym session, then you've got Monday off and then you kind of get back into routine on Tuesday. Drew, you got anything to add? Nah,
2: just, just more questions. Uh, if you can only maintain, like because of racing and stuff, let's say you can only hit the gym once every two weeks. Is it worth it? Mm. Uh I mean there's
0: so there this is the tricky thing right with the the race season and everything and I was just saying that I take lifting out completely during the race season because my schedule's too packed but mm-hmm. there there is a point at which it's been so long between gym sessions that you actually are going to feel quite a bit of soreness and mm-hmm. it's going to take away from your training um two to three weeks is probably starting to be on that threshold. I would, I would say that if you can't do one session a week, you should probably cut it out completely. Yeah.
1: yeah. I I mean, I I would say, what is your limiting factor there? Like, mm -hmm. is it because you don't have access to a gym or you just can't find the time, you know, every mm -hmm. other week?
2: Well, some, some people's limiting
0: factor is their ability to recover from hard intervals that they're doing to prepare for races and doing the endurance rides, and then they've got to add a gym session on top of that. It just gets to be too much to recover from.
2: Yeah. yeah, that's where I'm at right now. I've like I was doing gym before I broke my wrist, but then I couldn't do it with the broken wrist. So, like I obviously had that six or eight weeks where I didn't do anything. So, it'd be like starting over. So, I'm like I'm on the fence of like should I pick it back up, or at this point, should I just wait until after the season? And I'm I'm leaning towards just waiting because. I'm like so focused on trying to build up my volume and my endurance for the races I have coming up to, to add in another element with already as much as what I'm trying to do, I think would maybe push me over the edge is what I'm thinking for, for very little benefit considering I've taken eight weeks off. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm thinking. What do you guys think about uh, plyometrics in place of gym work? Cause I, I, for a lot of my younger athletes or people who just don't, don't have much experience in the gym or, or just don't want to go to the gym. Uh, I have I think personally that plyometrics is somewhat of a substitute because you do get a little bit of that explosiveness that we don't always train on the bike. The bike is a lot more grinding out and, you know, uh, so getting out and doing some like Basically, what for those of you who don't know who what plyometrics is is basically a workout that involves a lot of explosive jumping movements, mostly just using body weight. So you're talking mm-hmm. like power skips and air squats and squat jumps. A lot of just jumping movements, one legged jumps, quick feet, stuff like that. Um, and I'll do that. I'll give that to my high school athletes who who aren't quite ready for a full gym gym program uh, in lieu of, of Jim. And I think that that's a uh, pretty good
0: sub. So I haven't seen, and I don't know if this research even exists, but I haven't seen research on how plyometrics specifically affect cycling performance. You know, whether it's a positive benefit or no benefit, uh, I'm assuming there's some, some positive benefit. I'm assuming it's not no benefit. Right. Uh, but I'm hesitant to, 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 Say that it's as much benefit as doing heavy squats, and the reason I say that is yeah. because doing doing explosive jumping activities is not you're not reaching as many uh, as much fiber recruitment as you would a, he- a heavy squat set. Yeah. So I mean, I I can only I can only hypothesize right now, but if I had to make an educated guess, I would say. It's probably somewhat beneficial, not as beneficial as doing a heavy set of squats or deadlifts.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I don't think there's as much of the like neuromuscular gains that you're talking about with heavy lifting. Yeah, muscle recruitment. Um, But I think it's better than like a a body weight. It's like you could could do some body weight exercises in your living room Mm -hmm. or you could go to the gym. I think plyometrics is somewhere in the middle of that. You know what I mean? Like you're you're yeah. you're using your body weight, but it's so explosive that it's somewhere yeah. in the middle between those two things.
1: Could, yeah, so, could so vary the specific could very application. Well the specific application that I use plyometrics for, um, and I think I got this from you, Drew, when we first started working together, uh, or maybe it was. It might have even come from like that cyclocross devo camp that we coached together, something like that. Um, yeah. But for cyclocross athletes in particular, and the reason is like cyclocross athletes spend a lot of time. I mean a lot of time in quotes, you know, relative to other cyclists off the bike, you know, they're running, they're jumping off their bike, they're jumping back on their bike, they're running up hills. So you kind of need some of that off the bike agility in your feet. Um, You also want to like prepare your joints and, and everything for some of those demands. So it's a little bit different than like just going out and going for a run because going for a run, like you're, you're never in a cyclocross race, like just going for a jog. So like, I'll do a little bit of running training with, with some my cyclocross athletes, but it's more so again, just to kind of prepare like the joints and, and range of motion that, that you'd experience while running in a cyclocross race. But more so like if we're doing running training, we're like doing hill repeats or uh, stair climbs or, you know, uh 30 thirties, you know, hopping off the bike, running you know, shoulder on the bike, that kind of thing. Um, but plyometrics I think is really good for that off the bike agility. So, I I do prescribe plyometrics for my cross athletes, and and part of that too is like when you get into cross season, the intensity is so demanding that to to throw a gym session or two during the week is just really demanding. Like it's it's just it's just too much. So you know something like a plyometrics, like you're really not going to stress your system all that much. Like you might get your heart rate up a little bit, but you can do a plyometrics workout like in the middle of an interval workout even, and it's it's not going to really hinder your ability to hit hit the metrics on the bike. So that's why I like swapping in the plyometrics during season for cross athletes. Um, for my other athletes, like if we're taking out the gym, I usually don't do plyometrics, but I will recommend like a court, a court uh, session where it's like a 10 minute core workout. Um, I usually have 10, 20 and 30. Like you can either do one set, two sets or three sets of it. Um, and I just think that's good to like kind of stay somewhat well-rounded. And in. like I was mentioning, like keeping your posterior chain, in, in good health, I think is really important. So, uh, like I'll try to just slot that into my athletes workouts. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll put it in there once a week and if they have time to do it twice a week, they, they, they certainly can. Um, but again, it's not something that's going to like be a detriment to your, your interval workouts. And it's only 10 minutes. Like if you can't find 10 minutes, then that's probably on you. Uh, cause I <laughs> would argue that you, you should be able to find 10 minutes to do a core workout pretty easily. Yeah. Well, I think, I think we answered all of that guy's questions. Should we move on to the next one? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Michael. Uh, yeah, let's move on here. So, uh, let's see. Next one, we've got a series of questions. Okay. Uh, and they say, to whom... So, this is from, uh, let's see, from Richard hmm. from Germany. Uh, to whomever okay. feels qualified to answer these questions, number one... Hmm. Okay, it's kind of rapid fire, but maybe go in depth here if we need to. So sometimes okay. I feel that I have tired slash heavy legs after my rest day. Should I still go ahead with my planned hit session on those days, or replace the session with some other training, or maybe another day off the bike? Yeah. So this is not uncommon, um, and I will say that
0: you know probably prior to this year, I was very much uh, a person that prescribed. Hit sessions or interval sessions the day after a rest day, um, because theoretically that should you should be the freshest on that day. Uh, but I've experimented with some athletes that I coach, and I've experimented with myself, and and I've actually been having pretty good success with having good legs for interval sessions. Maybe you know, maybe the the day after the first day after the rest day, so two days after the rest day. <laughs> um where maybe you do a shorter endurance ride and then the next day you do an interval session and your legs actually feel pretty good cuz it is not uncommon for people to have kind of stale legs the day after a rest day. Uh I think that this probably is going to take some experimenting on your part and if you if you just find that you have better legs 2 days after a rest day as opposed to the day after the rest day, then you know, do your intervals 2 days after. Uh, I think, you know, people report different things here. I I do know people that say they feel amazing after a rest day. So
2: I don't think he should take two days off. No, Uh, he should take one day off. And then that second day should be some kind of low intensity endurance. If he's feeling like real smoked because he just had a huge weekend of racing or training, then maybe that Tuesday is like a. am assuming it's a Monday, Tuesday. uh, Maybe that Tuesday is like a one hour spin. But I think um, the best the best uh, choice would be to try to do like an endurance ride, like what Dylan's saying, and then and then do a Wednesday interval session. And I've had I've had athletes request that because they say that they, they their legs just feel better the day after a ride versus a day after nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So I think it's important to back up these claims with with data, mm-hmm. and and I say that because what I what I've seen with myself. And with athletes is that the day after a rest day, maybe that first interval suffers a little bit. You know, you're supposed to hit 300 watts, but pushing 300 just feels tough. So you hit 280 or 290, but like you're still pretty close. But then because you're still fresh, that second, third, fourth, fifth interval, like what I've seen is if you're you're truly fresh, it's the the latter intervals that tend to hang on better. So, Mm. you know, now you're hitting 300, now you're hitting 305, now you're hitting 310. Whereas if you come out and your first interval is like really good, like let's say you're taking that, you're, you're taking the approach where you're doing an endurance ride and then the next day you're doing the intensity ride. Maybe that first interval is really good. You hit 300 watts, but by the last interval, you're only hitting 290 because you're, you're fatigued. So I, I think it is important to kind of back up how you're how you're feeling with some of the data. And maybe that'll in, like motivate you to, to get through that first interval. Cause I think a lot of people just kind of give up on themselves after that first interval. They're just like defeated. Like, Oh, I just don't have it today. But that first interval is almost always just like any gym session, any other training session. The first interval is always going to be kind of a wash, you know, or throwaway, if you will. Like it's just there to kind of start to induce some fatigue. It's those last few interval session or interval sets that are going to be most critical. And that's where you want to like tr- have enough freshness to hold on. Now I will say Dylan, I, I have experimented or my coaches experimented this year uh, with having me do like a three or four hour endurance ride day one and then intervals the next day. And it's, I've had some pretty, pretty awesome days too, like doing it that way. So like mm-hmm. I've had mixed, mixed reviews and mixed success with both scenarios but that's what I, but I, I just wanted to say, like, don't give up on yourself on that first one. Like, you got to experiment with it. You got to get through that first interval and know that that first interval is kind of a throwaway. And it's really those last two or three intervals that matter most. So look at the data on of those intervals. And if you are going to experiment with, you know, whether you're doing intervals a day after a rest day or two days after a rest day, take a look at the data critically and don't just look at the first interval or don't just go on how you felt during the first interval. Like, look at the data and see, does, does it back it up? And if it does, like if, if you feel better on day two and you're hitting better numbers, like, well, that's your answer.
0: Yeah, I, this is completely, uh, I, I agree with that. You should, you should be looking at the, the power data to back up these claims. Just don't, don't do the first interval and be like, well, I feel like crap. So I'm just going to, just going to go home. Um, there, there are some days where you should be doing that. But I, you know, I think sometimes powering through and seeing if the interval session gets better is, is a good call. Um, this is, uh, this is N of one here, but I, when I was training for unbound and this may only apply to somebody who's doing an insane block of training that is way above what their normal volume or intensity is, which when I was training for unbound, that was the particular case. My volume was 10, 10 hours per week higher than it normally is easily. And so I I'm theoretically in a very fatigued state Uh, But it's actually, we talk about this with block periodization and we talk about this with stage racing. It's actually quite surprising what you can do in what should be a very fatigued state. The, the last, the last interval session of this two week block, uh, was on the very last day and it was at the end of a three day block. So, so I did a, Mind you that I did a 28-hour week, and then I did a 35-hour week. So it's already insane volume. And then this last three-day block of this this double-volume double, double volume week uh, block was an eight-hour ride at Zone 2, a five-hour ride at Zone 2, and then I did a tempo session. Um, and I tempo power has never felt easier in my whole life it felt so easy to do 320 watts i was shocked i i thought my power meter was reading incorrectly 320, 320 watts felt like 250 it was it was incredible um so i guess i don't know what point i'm getting at here but the i i i have i have been a lot more open to playing around with the order of where you put your interval session in a week this year
2: yeah Dylan, and, Dylan and, Dylan just it, wanted and it does that. depend <laughs> Go ahead. He, he just wanted to flex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do my No, intervals it, it after does my depend on hour the hour the hour.
1: interval session too. Not to discount what you just said, Dylan, but to do tempo versus like if you had to go do VO2 Max that day could have been very different, right? Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. you know, so like Dylan, you're you're prepping now for schwamigan in a month and you're gonna be doing mm-hmm. a, I would imagine a lot of high intensity. Like you probably don't want to do your 30 thirties with 16 hours of training over the last two days like you're going to come into Mm -hmm. that a little bit more fresh than that so it does depend on the types of intervals you're doing and where you're at in your training but i agree i mean i i've had i've had some days this year too where i shouldn't have felt as good as i did but i for whatever reason just felt really good um you know so I, i do think to go back to uh richard's question here you know, you just have to experiment with it and don't be, don't mm-hmm. be afraid to try some different things and just make sure you're looking at the data too and not just going off of how you feel. Yeah. Okay. So Richard's next question here is kind of similar. I was it's only kind of first question. Off of what you, what you just <laughs> mentioned. Yeah. Uh, Richard says, do you guys feel it's possible to do block periodization on a weekly basis? For example, mm-hmm. going for three hit sessions from Tuesday to Thursday, Friday off, and then longer endurance rides on the weekend no <laughs> i wouldn't do that <laughs>
2: i mean, i'd say i'd say he's pushing it like uh, he's
0: talking about doing that every single week having three days in a row of intervals every single week
2: yeah but doesn't science say two to three sessions of high intensity and he'd be just doing three <laughs> yeah but they're in a row every week is yeah. i think the issue like yeah, they're not spread means, out at all that also means he has four days of recovery between them i, mean, I, I know, see, he's, I he's see I can long see, rides on the weekend though yeah, but like the you long got, rides aren't yeah, I know. They're not like full recovery, but but they're not high intensity. So you so just got four days between them. Look, it would I could see it not being terrible,
0: but I, probably not optimal. If I had to give if I had to give a guess to how that would turn out, I would think you would get a month into that and then you would you would just feel super tired and overtrained. And your your interval sessions would not go well. If I had to give a guess to how that would turn out, I mean, I've never tried that. And I've actually, I don't know anyone who's ever tried that, to be honest. I'm sure somebody has, right? But I don't know of anyone who's like, I'm going to do three days of intervals in a row. And then the rest of the week is going to be zone two. Um, I'm curious.
2: I think think it could work. (laughs) Drew, you should try that leading into big sugar. No, I'm going to smoke you a big sugar, but... (laughs) Uh, I think it could work. Is it Michael? So, no, Richard. So I've, this is Richard. I've got an athlete. Richard, you should try. I've
1: got an athlete that's um, that's doing Cape Epic next year, and I've actually thought about something similar to this for helping him prepare for it, uh, but not on a weekly, like consistent basis. Uh, hmm. But I did think about because the the bulk of his training, like we're starting now, but like the bulk of his training isn't going to you know is going to take place from like November through February or you know, March because the race is in March. And for us North Americans here, like that's the winter season. So like it's kind of hard to get a ton of volume in over the winter time. Mm-hmm. So I've thought about doing a block like let's say in December. so like pretty far out from the race, so there's plenty of time to recover and you know redirect if needed. but like in December, doing three weeks of like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, demanding rides, like you know, tempo or low threshold, nothing like super high intensity. And then his longer rides on the weekends, but just for like one month. And then, Mm -hmm. um, and then kind of going back into normal training after that. But just to get like a fitness bump and to accumulate fatigue and be training through that fatigue state, I'm still like, it's still a little bit up in the air. Um, but that's something I thought about. And, and, and like you said, Drew, I I think, I think as long as those weekend rides, and, and this will be kind of the case for my athlete, is by December, like the weather's not super nice. So, like, probably not doing six hour rides in the weekend, probably doing more like three hour rides in the weekend, maybe four. So like those endurance rides aren't pushing beyond what he's already adapted to. So as long Mm -hmm. as those, like he, you know, uh, Richard mentions doing longer endurance rides on the weekend, as long as those endurance rides are well within what you're currently adapted for, I don't, I, I think it could work. Um, it's just like, what what, what is the reasoning for it? Like there has to be, there has to be a reason why you would do that. And I I don't think the research shows that it's going to be more effective in like increasing your FTP or, um, you know, long term training trajectory. But if there's like a specific reason, like for us, like we're training for Cape Epic, which is a demanding stage race. Like that's kind of the only reason that I'd be considering it.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I I think that this could this could potentially work in in the short term, maybe a month or two months. I think if you were to do this every single week for... Over the course of a year or a season, you would find yourself quite burnt out and overtrained. That that would for be sure. my guess.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. It would be hard to do that continuously.
1: Okay, question number three. What are you guys' thoughts on compression socks during rides and after rides for recovery? Mm, it probably helps if you're a triathlete. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Don't athletes wear no socks? They wear no socks, man. Yeah. They either wear no socks or they have the compression <laughs> socks or kind right. of compression things. So, man, it's been so long since I made this video,
0: but I did make a video on different recovery methods and I included some research on compression socks in there. Uh, there is a little bit of research on compression garments, I guess, if you want to call them. And, uh, it's been so long since I looked at it, but there were, there were some positive studies that showed, you know, increased recovery, uh, as far as wearing them during, uh, I think that there, I, I'm going to be honest. I think there's some research that shows that there's improved, you know, improved physiological metrics by wearing these during, uh, your activity as well. Uh, I don't know how strong that research is but I you know there I know that there is at least a couple studies that showed that wearing some sort of compression garment during activity is actually beneficial um,
1: so Dylan is that why the UCI put a limit as far as sock height or was that for aerodynamics no reasons? that's
0: aerodynamics okay they didn't they didn't want people wearing aero socks up to their knees right um, so you know just as an example um the kit con- uh, kit company that I'm sponsored by rule 28, they actually make compression bib, uh, bib tights or compression, um, like chamois. And I, I have a couple pairs and they're just, it just feels like they're a little bit tighter than normal, than a normal chamois. Um, I haven't, I haven't like gone out to do a set of intervals with normal and then gone out to do a set of intervals with like the compression version and see if I put out more power. So I can't really tell you personally, whether they work or not. Um, but there, I, they, they didn't just randomly come up with that. They actually do have research to back that up. So, uh, as dorky as it might look, there actually is there, there is some research that suggests that compression garments are helpful.
1: Dude, when I, when I did migration, uh, two months ago, by the last day, my saddle sores were so bad that I had to wear, <laughs> that I wore two bib shorts
2: oh and,
1: and it was like, it was like wearing compression bibs. Cause they, there was mm-hmm. the, the outer layer was so tight on my legs Yeah, and the, the first like five minutes, it felt like super weird. I was like, oh, this might be a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> but by the end I didn't even notice it. And, and that was actually my, my back actually held up the most, the best that day. So I don't know. Maybe it worked.
2: Nice. I, nice. I, I
1: only did it because I, I needed the extra protection Shammy. in the backside. But I think I had
0: a buddy in college who he would he would take an old chamois and cut out that and then like double stitch it onto a newer chamois, and that was like that was the pair of shorts that he wore if he had a bad saddle sore. Hey, oh, wow. it worked <laughs> for
1: me. I didn't even notice it.
2: Like wow. the saddle sore was gone. Good stuff. Um, I don't think his questions. We've gone down another road, but, um, (laughs) I've, I have never really like thought about wearing compression stuff while I ride. Um, but I have, uh, many times worn them for recovery and specifically when you're traveling. I've heard that like, if you're sitting on a, in a car on a plane, like your blood pools in your legs, which again, I mean, I, maybe there's some Dylan would know if there's research on this or not. I mean, I don't know if they've put people on planes with or without (laughs) L- yeah. lots of research, so, okay so uh so that's like the number one reason i in the past have used compression stuff is just mainly for recovery and mm-hmm. for travel yeah
1: yeah i almost always wear compression socks on airplanes unless the flight's like two hours or less or if i'm just like traveling for any reason <laughs> other than bike racing um, yeah but yeah i'll do it in the car too like if i'm driving more than mm-hmm. four, four or five hours like it Right, I don't. I don't get too hung up if it's like a two or three hour drive because I'm probably stopping at one point anyways to stretch the legs. But for those longer rides where you're going to be sitting multiple stints at three hours in length, I'll, I'll usually throw some compression socks on, and you can feel a difference. Like go on a six hour flight without compression socks and like feel your calf halfway through, and like your your calf will feel like you know super dense, like mm. everything's just swelled. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, or, or tighten your shoes like all the way at the start of the, start of the flight and like halfway through, like your feet will start to feel pressure. Yeah.
2: That's the blood pooling. Yeah. Good call.
1: Okay. Richard has one more question. Then we're going to move on. Uh, has, has one of you or have one of you ever tried mixed mix intensity workouts where basically you do different intensities alternating between like say VO two max and threshold efforts in the same workout.
2: It's like a kitchen sink kind of workout. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, usually that's like a race specific interval session where,
0: you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe you start the interval session with uh, some threshold and then you ride at endurance for a little bit. And then you do some like race winning intervals at VO2 max to kind of simulate, uh, you know, what what you might see during a race. Yeah, I've done plenty of those.
2: Yeah, yeah. Similar to what Dylan said. I've yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah race simulation style workouts especially for cyclocross where you start out so basically opposite of what dylan just said you start out at max intensity and you go from maybe a minute all out to five minutes of threshold to 10 minutes of tempo uh so like descending intervals because that's more like cyclocross specific i've done those but i have seen teammates uh of mine do like these crazy workouts in the middle of the off season and i'm like what was the point of that where they do like A bunch of tempo a bunch of threshold a bunch of vo2 and it's like in the back of my head i'm thinking like they're probably building fitness no doubt but like there's no focus uh especially like in the base season when i feel like there should be focus um Mm -hmm. and so i you know but at this in the same in the same vein like uh i I'll do these workouts during the base season where I'll mix in some high intensity with my tempo intervals just to like, because it is good to do some high intensity throughout the base season. So I'll mix in like sprints with my tempo. Um, but it's it's kind of incorporated. And like the bulk of the training is still tempo. I'm just kind of, you know, sh- like just kind of sprinkling in some high intensity in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the yeah, sometimes those workouts that are like a bunch of tempo, a bunch of threshold and a bunch of VO2. I'm like, what, like, what do you, what's the goal of that? Um, unless it's to ready, unless it's to get ready for a race, I don't really see the point of a a workout like that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, Richard, that was fun. Yeah, Uh, Those were, they were good questions and they weren't all like about the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure.
1: Uh, yeah, that was fun. Okay. Let's hit one more and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. So this one comes from Jesse uh, and he's talking about pacing the start of marathon mountain bike races. Uh, so it says question for Adam on the matchbox podcast regarding a pacing strategy for the Dakota five Oh, uh, Mm. which is a big race in South Dakota. That's coming up in a few weeks. So he says the race begins with a 15 ish minute road climb. How do you Mm. pace this initial climb? If you're not necessarily trying to keep up with the leaders over threshold and risk blowing up later sub threshold and risk losing time behind slower riders in the single track areas. Uh, any pacing tips for the remainder of the race for Context I have a 303 watt FTP 4.1 watts per kilo in 2021. He finished in 442. Uh, this year, oh, and that was with a 271 watt FTP. This year, he'd love to see a top 30 finish.
2: Uh, wow. Jesse, it's a big improvement from 270 to 300. Yeah, um. I, so I made a huge mistake at BWR California, a very similar scenario where there's a big climb at the beginning of the race, but then it's a really long race after that big climb. Um, and the climb that it sounds like the Dakota 5.0 climb is maybe even longer. I don't know if bigger, but longer. The climb in BWR was maybe, it's probably like, uh, it's under 10 minutes. And so this one's fine, but I made the mistake of intentionally not staying with the leaders. And and regretted it for the whole race because then I was chasing all day. Uh, and somebody after the race had told me if there's a lot of firepower in the front group, it's going to be better to stay where the firepower is because that group is just going to naturally move faster than the rest of the race. So, um, but it, you know, I, I, I so maybe not. That's maybe that's not the lead group, but I would maybe think about pushing yourself a little harder than maybe you would think on that first climb to end up in a good group. And like he said, not get stuck behind. Because if you're, if you think about it, you know, especially if it's, if there's going to be some pack racing dynamic, you don't want to be by yourself all day, which is what happened to me at BWR California. I was basically in little groups all day and it's much better to be in a bigger group where you can get more advantage from the draft and just the momentum of the group. Um, but for most of the day, it was like me and Lance hated it, like just chasing all day. And, uh, I guarantee you that was a lot harder than had I just stayed in that front group over that first climb.
0: So yeah. I, this completely depends on how much drafting there is on the course. Right. And I think Adam can answer the question to how much drafting there is on the Dakota 5.0. Yeah.
1: So for, for context, the, this first section he's talking about is paved slash dirt road for maybe four miles and then mm-hmm. you hit single track and then it's single track for the next forty some miles until you get yeah. back to that same point and then it's four miles back to the finish downhill. So not a lot of drafting. So almost no drafting <laughs> once you get beyond this, this initial climb. Alright, so completely With disregard single track. What- completely. No, but di-
2: it's single track because it's still the same thing because you don't want to get stuck behind. That's even worse because how are you going to pass all the <sighs> yeah, slow people I in mean, front of you? I, I see that. I see that. But what I'm saying is like... is At the Kahuta 100 when there's 20, when there was a three mile climb and then 20 miles of single track, I was trying to be first yeah, to no, I, every time.
0: I, I can see that. I can see that for sure. But man, yeah, it's a little bit. Yeah, it's a little bit tricky, I guess, because it's single track. What What I was going to say is that How, how hard you should try to stay with the front group is completely dependent on how much drafting there is in the race. If the race is very drafting heavy, um, like let's say it's like gravel locos where you can, there's so much drafting, the speed is so high and it's so flat that drafting is like all that matters then depending on what your level is. But if, I don't know if you're fighting for a top 30, you should be fighting to stay with the front group. Um, even if they're going way harder than they should be going and way harder than you should be going. If it's a race where there's almost no drafting at all, like most mountain bike races, then completely ignore what everybody else is doing and ride at a pace that you know is sustainable. The fastest way to get from point A to point B is not to ride hard and then blow up. The fastest way from point A to point B is to either do even splits or even do negative splits if that's possible for you. So, um... But I I agree with Drew. The the single track does kind of throw a wrench in that. So it's a little bit of a balancing act, I would say.
2: As you're climbing up the 15-minute climb, take a look at the riders around you and try to gauge what their skill level might be. Because you can kind of tell by the gear setup and the way people are riding, like were just their age like oh this guy this 50 year old might be real strong but he probably can't turn like me so yeah
1: so that's actually a really good point and I mean? that, yeah and that was actually going to be like my specific advice for jesse here is the climb doesn't actually end at 15 minutes just the road ends and then it's another mm-hmm. like 10 15 minutes of climbing after that of single track mm. yeah so you want to pace it like, like, you know, for, for Jesse, I would have him pace it as if it's a 30 minute climb, but the last two or three minutes before you get into the single track is when you want to look around and see who's around you. And this is what I do even with the front group is like, you want to make sure that before that single track hole shot comes up, that you're in front of people that you think you're going to be able to pass on the single track you don't want to get stuck behind someone slower. So you can kind of tell like who's fading, you know, who's kind of like losing touch with the wheel in front of them. Who's maybe like swerving their bike a little bit. Who's like out of the saddle mashing. And it looks like they're at max effort just to stay that, that pace, you know, so maybe ride the first 12 minutes where you're kind of looking at power, staying within yourself. I would, I I don't know. I think, I think if you rode at threshold or just sub threshold, it'd be fine. You know, so maybe keep it at, and, and it is a little bit of elevation too. It's at like, 4,000 feet. So not super high, but you know, plays a little factor. <laughs> so you know, maybe keep it like 285, 290, something like that. Um, but then those last couple minutes, forget what the power is and, and worry about positioning at that point. And try to get in front of any riders that you're worried about having to like, you know, that, that are going to clog the single track in front of you. And then kind of go back into your pacing after that. But that's like your your real chance to pass a lot of riders is those last couple minutes. So take advantage of that. Um, but yeah, don't you know? I I don't want to. I don't want Jesse to overlook the fact that you got to keep climbing after this. So like, you don't want to go ride super threshold for the first fifteen minutes and then slow down a bunch once you hit the single track because you've got another fifteen minutes of climbing. Mm-hmm. I
0: think that I. So I, I don't know. Hi, do you know how how easy or hard it is to pass on the Dakota Five O course? Is it really hard to pass?
1: Um, it's not. I wouldn't say it's really hard, but it it takes it takes cooperation like it it, it's it's hard to pass people if you're forced to pass but if Mm -hmm. people are willing to slide over a little bit like there's plenty of opportunity for that um but especially the first single track climbs like you you climb for 15 minutes after the road then you descend and then the first major climb of single track is like the most technical part of the whole trail and it's pretty hard to pass people on that again unless they're like willing to get over to the side. So it's really easy to get stuck behind riders going up that climb. Yeah. Fair
0: enough. I, I think I agree. I agree with your tactic, Adam. Um, yeah. I've been, I've been really big on, on pacing uh, races correctly. And again, it depends on the race and it depends on how much drafting there is. Um, but you know, I, I've gotten real comfortable with just letting, sixty riders go up the road because I'm riding at a pace that I know is sustainable. And then by the end of the race, you know, there I am uh like on, you know, in the top twenty or the top ten or the podium. Like bighorn, there were five minutes into the race, there were probably sixty riders ahead of me. And by <laughs> the end of the race I was in third place. I and and I think you, your average speed ends up being higher. If you do that, it's so hard to do because people get excited and they just want to stay with the front group and they feel good on the first climb, but it really depends on the course. But I, I've, I've had a lot of, uh, a lot of good races using that strategy lately and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty big on it. Yep. I'm going to use that against you at big sugar. I'm not using it at Big Sugar, dude. Big Sugar is all drafting. I'm not. I'm not using that strategy at Big Sugar. Again, it depends on the race. Like Gravel Locos, I would never do that strategy, right? Ever. Uh, but and Big Sugar, I would. I would not use that strategy either. But Leadville, no, you should. No, no you, should, you should. Leadville, a hundred percent. Leadville. When you get into the Grand Prix next year, Drew, you should totally try to stay with the leaders on the first
2: climb. That, I love how you how, how you're so confident I'm going to get in, and I'm like so not confident <laughs> all right sh- well if should Ian- we take this off air <laughs> yeah 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 i think we can all have it, it.
1: okay <laughs> all right thanks everyone we'll, we'll catch you next week all right folks thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the matchbox podcast like i said at the beginning you can send any questions or topic suggestions to matchboxpod at gmail.com with email title the matchbox podcast links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn more about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go!